Have you been zombified by your GPS or by your implant or your wearable or any of the following? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You have? Oh, definitely. Yeah? <laughs> so, and as we'll discuss today, I'm thrilled about it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and brain enthusiast. Mmm, brains. Right. <laughs> or just giving up your brains and letting computers take over. Another possibility. Mmm, completely. Silicon-based yep. cognition. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that is kind of what our episode is about. Like, what to what extent have you outsourced your brains to your smartphone or your wearable device? Yep. And, and how much are you going to outsource it in the next coming years? Yeah. So. How much will your children outsource it? Yeah. And how much should they? Like, that's a big question we talk about today. Is, is this good? Is this bad? Yeah. Well, well if you want to know the answer you better listen exactly that's yeah. uh just let us let let the voice that's coming out of whatever speaker you're listening to decide for you <laughs> <laughs> so we have an amazing guest this week on zombified katina michael who is at asu and she studies technology and the future yeah this is one of my favorite episodes it's a really really good episode and it just like makes you think about what life is going to be like in the future yeah um it's a, and now yeah and what it's like now so and she has a really interesting take on it yeah so, so let's listen to this week's fresh brain katina michael i know it's crazy but it seems so logical try to fight it but it's something psychological with you I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> it's amazing having you here. Is it like zombie land? It is. It is yeah, kind basically. of zombie land. Yes. I mean, <laughs> if you look around, there's all sorts of zombie stuff in here. So um, we'll probably zombify you over the course of this next hour. I look forward to living with the Z mark. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Katina, would you introduce yourself in your own words for us? Well, Katina Michael from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and also the School of Computing and Informatics and Decision Systems Engineering. And as you can tell, I'm an Australian. Excellent. <laughs> so how did you get into the field that you study? And dare I ask, what is, would you say you have a field? I mean, you do so many different things. So I'm truly interdisciplinary. Sometimes people refer to me as a social scientist, other times uh, an information technology professional. Look, I think I've got a very, very uh diverse background. And so I've done uh, studies in law, I've done studies in IT, and I've worked in telecommunications engineering just as we were about to launch 3G networks across the world in the mid-90s, would you believe? So I saw the dot-com crash happen. 
I saw this wave of innovation happen, and I was actually there at the forefront deploying 3G services across the world. Wow. So you were there when the shit hit the metaphorical fan. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> there were competitors selling brochureware. People were promising, you know, it would be the, the new heaven and earth. And, uh, of course, uh, everyone didn't have things working quite right, but they were still deploying services across the world. It was an amazing time as we saw deregulation happening across Asia, Europe, and uh, North and South America. And we were talking about how we would turn voice into data and how we would be requiring these mobile phones that had apps that people would use for games even before this actually was a need in society. Wow. Wow. So you saw everything change and you saw the sort of beginnings of all of this before people could even imagine what it would be like to have a little computer in their pocket all the time. Exactly. Um, At the time, I was doing my PhD as well, part-time at the University of Wollongong. And here I was dreaming up about the future. Uh, The future to me was implantables. It was beyond wearables. And I turned to the back of the Nortel World newspaper. Back then it was printed and it went to 150 locations across the world, 80,000 employees. And I see this one article that says Nortel Networks sponsors Cyborg 1.0 project, Kevin Warwick, to the value of $200,000. And I thought, wow, here we are talking about the time that we won't need mobile phones, but mobile phones were still in the very nascent 1.0 stage. And we were talking about going beyond brain-to-computer interfaces to brain-to-brain interfaces. Wow. 1998. Wow. So what... What has happened in the last 20 years in your in your assessment? Like where where have things gone in terms of what people were expecting in 1998 and then what actually has happened in the intervening time? So here we were imagining business cases that would require people to pay $100 per month. Average revenue per user, we used to call it in our business cases. And we used to think, nah, that's just too much. Who would be willing to pay $100 US per month to actually use a mobile phone that people would just be relying on for security. But of course, those of us who are a little bit more greedy, we're thinking about (laughs) different things like um, different applications. Uh, Email was one of them. People had started to create uh, giant PowerPoint files with multimedia, and some of them were 100 megabytes in size back in 2000. And we thought, okay, if people do this enough, if people send x-rays over mobile apps, if people um, record music over mobile apps, then perhaps we will have this demand. But what we realized is we fell short. We could never imagine the explosion that took place in front of us in such a short period of time. And so when I started working in academia in 2002, I started to set these assignments uh, that were a little bit, um, for me, interesting. You know, how long can you live without your mobile phone? Mm. And this was during the web stage, right? We didn't even have full multimedia. So these were like assignments and classes that you were teaching. Oh, yeah. So people would forgo, and our students would forgo food uh, for a new laptop device, uh, a new mobile device. And uh, I said, you know, you've got it sort of around the wrong way. Shouldn't you be eating first, paying your rent, and then, you know, paying for a new mobile phone? But people were already hooked. And so as I began to run this assignment over many years, I realized we became less and less, it became less and less viable to go anywhere without your mobile phone. It's like leaving yourself at home. You know, yeah. you would never forget to leave yourself at home. <laughs> uh, and people would start to talk about anxiety issues 
a deep separation and a, a deep anxiety when they were distanced from their phone. It's almost like they were in love with their device. Ooh. <laughs> so now we're in the zombification yeah. zone. That's right. Yeah. So I had this experience. It was um, two years ago. I went to um, give maybe the most important talk I've ever given in my life, which was at Harvard, at the Harvard Museum, about my work. Wow. And on the way to the airport here in Tempe, my phone was working when I got in the cab. And then while I was in the cab, it just completely crashed. I couldn't get it to restart, wouldn't do anything. So here I am, I'm like on my way to arguably the most important talk I you know, have ever given, and my phone is not working. Um, Thankfully, I had like I printed out my boarding pass because I'm still like old school. I'd like to like have yep. a boarding pass. So I was like, OK, I at least have the next hour and a half. I've got this down. But um, I, you know, I spent the first day or so trying to figure out how can I get to a store to get my phone fixed so that I can have it. And and I realized, actually, I'm much better off just accepting that it's not going to get fixed and figuring out how I'm going to manage. Like, so, you know, I'm in my hotel room looking on Google Maps. Of course, I'm still dependent on technology, right? But I'm, I'm looking on Google Maps. I'm like, okay, um, this is how I get from my hotel to where my meetings are. And I didn't have a printer, right? Because I'm in a hotel room. Mm -hmm. So I'm like drawing like a little <laughs> map. And I'm like, okay, and then here's this landmark and here's this, you know, coffee shop. And I have to turn at this corner where that coffee shop is. So I like had this little like piece of paper in yep. my pocket with my little map. And I actually ended up having an awesome experience <laughs> because I was paying attention uh -huh. to where I was in a way that I wouldn't have if I had my phone. And I left feeling like, oh, I have some sense of the layout of, you know, mm -hmm. where things are here. And I could get from one place to another without having to be on my phone after two days of having this little map in my pocket. So, so it, it changed my feelings about my relationship with my phone that number one, I survived. Um, <laughs> That's number <good>. two, <laughs> um, you know, there weren't any crises related to my giving a talk because I didn't have my phone other than at one point people were trying to call me, but they, you know, they emailed me and eventually I got on my computer. And uh, so, you know, there's like one little hiccup maybe that wouldn't have happened if I had my phone with me, but it all ended up okay, and I ended up feeling like I had been more present to the place because I didn't have a GPS that I was consulting all the time. I think that's a wonderful story, and we've all seen that happen to others. Um, my husband doesn't own a mobile phone. Really? Wow. Yeah, and there are many people that I know that don't own one either. Um, and they see the world through very different eyes. Uh, they see urgency in a different way. Uh, they're very aware and, as you say, very present um, but sometimes I wish he did have a phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Katina, you just recently have um, shown that there are some really crazy situations that people get themselves into, right? Because they're relying on their GPSs. Oh, yeah. Look, um, there are so many case studies out there. And to be honest, I think all of us have been in a scenario, me included, where we've been trying to listen to the GPS to navigate us uh, somewhere. And most of us don't have hard copy street directories anymore. I mean, who owns those? You know, who puts them at the back of the car? 
And so we've got children and usually they have to go to training and they have to go to different parks and reserves and uh, often they have trials and, you know, there's, it's time sensitive. Yeah. But if you leave and haven't done your homework, perhaps using a, a desktop computer looking up Google Maps, then you might find yourself in some level of exposure or what I call vulnerability. As the time ticks on, as the GPS doesn't take you to where you need to be, you start to have a panic attack and then you lose control, I find. That's what and then, you know, different people in the car with different applications, all the GPSs are going off at once trying to direct you to the place. But there's something that happens to us. It's almost like our common sense is overridden. We'll pass three or four people. We won't stop to say, hey, you know, do you know where this park is? We'll keep relying on the GPS, which for some reason either has the wrong coordinates saved on it, right, mm -hmm. so the park is no longer there or the coordinates were wrongly placed there. Um, and then what happens is there's a dynamism that escalates. And before you know it, uh, you may find yourself down a dirt road. You may find yourself down a boat ramp, you might find yourself down <laughs> a, a, a civic centre that shouldn't have cars in it. And so how does this happen to us? Um, recently I was in a lift car and I told the driver I knew where I was going. It was quite simple. Two roads down South Mill Avenue and then left onto Southern and the GPS was taking the driver about 12 kilometres in the opposite direction. Hmm. And I said, look, you know, I do this route every morning. I promise I'm not lying. <laughs> I just yeah. need to get to the destination with my kids. And she was depressed, anxious, flustered. She said, you know, it happened to me. I just dropped off an angry customer at Sky Harbour and I told him it wasn't my fault. I was just listening to the coordinates and I'm not from here. I'm from Indiana. And the, so the story mm. went. And I think soon those drivers will be asking for compensation. But what happens when we didn't even realise we're going in the wrong ways and we didn't even care? We're looking down. We're looking uh -huh. at our phones we're completely oblivious to spatio-temporal issues mm -hmm. and we find ourselves half an hour away from where we should be because we never looked up. Right, and almost that stress of I need to get where I'm going like narrows your focus, right? So you're not attending to these other cues that might let you know you're going the wrong direction or that something's a little odd about the boat ramp that you're now on, right? It's just like you <laughs> focus your attention just on the cues that you're getting from... Well, GPS. you're so right. I mean, you described your situation at Harvard and you felt, you know, you got more out of the, the location and the area and the history of, of the Harvard surrounds uh, because you had no digital. You know, your head wasn't stuck in the cloud or in the virtual yeah. space. Uh, but I'll give you one example. Um, in 2014, Apple Maps changed their mapping system. And for some reason, about eight to ten drivers were taken down a runway. This is an airport runway. Wow. And when it was a regional airport, so, you know, not too many fencing uh, around the, the location, and someone decided from the staff on the ground, well, we'll just barricade it. We'll barricade the entry that people seem to be following on Apple Maps. And so what do drivers do? They would drive up to the barricade, stop their car and think, oh, it's telling me to go straight. I'll just move the barricade to the right, and then that enables me to keep driving wow. because I need to get to my destination. So it's not just not being aware, there's something else going on here. Hmm, what, what do you think it is? What's um, Almost some kind of uh, sleep to the effect that we're alive and breathing. Um, it's almost like we're comatose. We're in a coma. We're locked, we're locked in. You know, there's this notion mm. of a, 
uh, locked in syndrome, um, which is a horrendous uh, illness. You're blowing my mind right now. Yeah, but we're locked in. in. Yeah. Locked in syndrome is um, when you find yourself in a state where the only things that you can move, perhaps after a motorbike accident, are your eyelids. And uh, you can still communicate with people because of, you know, A is just one blink, B is so forth. And many people find themselves in the situation for some time uh, before they pass. Uh, But are we locked in? Um, What is happening to us in the virtual space? Um, How numb have we become? How dumb, stupefied have we become? How zombified have we become? (laughs) How zombified have you become, Dave? Oh, I mean... I've gotten a I've gotten a traffic ticket. This was actually in the early days of cell phones. I got a traffic ticket by making an illegal left when my phone told me to, and I was like, "Well, the phone says to make a left here," mm. but it was mm. clearly like I was in a lane that wasn't a turn lane at all. Um, and so uh, you know what that makes me think about is this like old social psych research that happened in the wake of World War II about whether people will do things that are unethical i mean in your case you know it, it was just a small it wasn't legal unethical, but it infraction was yeah, yeah yeah um but if people you know will do will harm others because there is some authority telling them to sure. do so right and that's a really powerful force when you when you feel like oh someone else is telling me to do it so if i do it it's on that person that's telling me to do it and so what happens when the person quote unquote telling you to do something is an algorithm oh yeah i mean that's really you're describing there athena human in the loop and human out of the loop and command and control uh these drone strikes that we talk about these kill strikes and signature strikes um perhaps when there are no humans in the loop uh, who is liable for the decision being made and here the human seems to be in the loop they seem to be taking instructions but are they really in the loop or they just driving to instructions. And what we know about the lift um, service is that it avoids left-hand turns, interestingly, David. Sure. Uh, it only takes you as far as possible on right-hand sides. Um, but a lot of the lift drivers have described to me as I take them every morning, uh, tell me about how, why is it that the service always tells me about reaching my destination after the fact? And so there's the, the majority of accidents of um, rideshare happen with U-turns because people have missed their destination. You know, sure. um, you know mm-hmm. missing, our, huh. missing our destination, you know, missing the stop, not getting off. Yeah, which is maybe part of what we're in right now is we're missing our destination. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> where it's like, what is our destination? Where, where are we actually trying to go? I know. I, I keep thinking, you know, I've been thinking about my brother-in-law, Angelo, the last sort of six hours and – he would play these classic games when my children were very young uh, toddlers. It was the zombie game, I'm going to get you and wrap my head around you, you know. And, of course, it was all in all in joy and, and fun. But are we, you know, what's the relationship between zombification and sheep, the sheep mentality? But the, the, <laughs> the, I don't know. The, I've been thinking about these things, these games, these innocent games uh, yeah. and where we're going uh, in our trajectory. Well, there's a certain comfort to having someone else tell you what to do oh yeah right i mean and even as we're talking about this i'm thinking yeah you know the algorithms will get better right like i'm still just like i'm like well they get better. they get better so fast i'll keep listening to them right Mm -hmm. um so i think yeah i think there is a thing of it's really nice to be able to 
I don't know. It, that's a good question because I've heard that, you know, people feel disconnected and maybe it isn't so nice, but there, it, I mean, it's certainly an easier way to get places. Um, and that. Well, in the short term, but in the medium term or the long term, is it? Like, so part of what happened when I came back from this trip where I didn't have my phone is I was all of a sudden aware that when I got into the car to go to the grocery store that's a mile from me, I would still look at my GPS, even though, like, I've been living here for three years. I should be able to get to the grocery store that's one mile away without looking at my GPS. And, in fact, that now that I can get there without my GPS, it's faster. Of course without, it is. Right? Yeah, sure. Because of course I don't it is. have to take the two or three minutes to hook up the GPS and put in the thing and all of that. Some people say that the algorithms are skewed to going through tollways, going through congested areas. Oh. You know, I've sort of dispelled that myth with some of my research, but people are pretty adamant. Um, they're also adamant that they don't know how to get from their workplaces sometimes half an hour away back to their home. They do use their GPS. And as the GPS reroutes you through at allegedly the least congested route, you're not paying attention. You could be going through side streets, not really main roads. And there are stories of adults who don't know if you told them, you know, show me by pen and paper how you get home every day. They couldn't tell you because they're not paying attention. But the question here is we're looking at this as a disembodiment. It's somewhere outside. The AI, the algorithms are outside. What I want to challenge you by today, the both of you, is what happens when we begin to interface through AI, through these conceptions uh, of Elon Musk's Neuralink, uh, and through these computer brain interfaces uh, that are sitting just behind our head. And that's where my research really is mm. in the adoption of brain implantables that will replace even things that we know like mobile phones into the future. So, so yeah, what's tell us Neuralink? a little bit about, yeah. yeah. So um, what we're looking at traditionally uh, in order to respond to medical conditions like uh, Parkinson's disease, Tourette syndrome, dystonia, where people really have something uh, disconnected um, and there's a hope to reconnect uh, some of those areas in the brain that are responsible for movement, speech and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, we're now placing deep brain stimulation devices, DBS, these are brain pacemakers in actual fact, into parts of the brain that help us to correct um, things like Parkinson's or at least keep at bay those recurring tremors, um, the inability to walk and talk at the same time. And so what if our future was an algorithm that sat not just on our handset, but imagine the handset coming closer and closer to the ear, miniaturized, smaller, to the point that you could either interface directly uh, with the nervous system just behind the ear or in actual fact be completely symbiotic uh, with the brain, with the wetware, with the hardware. What, what then? You know, is it something completely that we're at arm's length about listening to or not, or is it so close to our bodies and our brains that it's almost implicit? What do you think? Would you, would you put an implant like that on yourself, Dave? Well, I think it's going to be inevitable, right? I think it's going to be one of these things like cell phones because it, it will, I imagine, as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, well, it'll provide such an advantage in terms of like, you know, access like brain Wikipedia so are you all in? Like, would you be like, I'm taking this I'm, right now? So I so I took a science fiction writing class many years ago and here at ASU. And one of the students in this class wrote 
this story about a world where brain implants were ad-supported, right? And so people would have these brain implants and they'd be walking around and suddenly they would just have these urges, right? They'd just be like, I really want Starbucks right now. <laughs> and I, it's always stuck with me. I loved the story. And so I always think about that, like that, you know, because so much of right now, like Google is ad-supported and all these sorts of things. So I do, I imagine it will happen, but I'm nervous about the idea of a little wired thing that may eventually just start. Would, would you do it? Would I do it? Yeah. Like, so... So for me or for my kids? For you. Yeah. Pro well, I don't know. I'd have to say it depends <laughs> what the product is. Okay. But I think that the real question is when, like, our grandkids are going to school, uh -huh. right, and most of the kids in their class have it, and it will provide these academic advantages, then... Then what? So then you're right? all you're all in. You're not like not for you. <laughs> Maybe for your kids. Definitely for your grandkids is what you're saying. I mean, I, I I don't even know. I don't know if it'll be a resistible sort of you know like I don't know. So because there's the question of do I morally think this is what I would want to have happen or and then there's also the question of realistically what's going to happen right and I know that my kids now have phones and I often think they don't need phones they're on their phones every day. Why did I get them the phones? But I also know I got them the phones. So I think that's probably how it's going to be with the brain implants. I think I never should have. I never should have gotten my grandkids those brain implants. It's the worst decision. <laughs> but now, now we can unplug them, you know. So, um, what about <laughs> you guys? Yeah. Well, so I personally just do not want anything running algorithms on my person like I won't wear an Apple phone I won't even like put my phone in my pocket really I mean sometimes I end up doing it temporarily but I just I don't like this feeling of that there is this whole other set of computational processes that's like not in my brain that is somehow influencing my nervous system I just don't don't like it and so um not for me and I'm going to tell my kids you know, don't get implants and tell your kids not to get implants and tell your kids to tell their kids <laughs> not to get implants ad infinitum because, you know, ultimately, probably there's going to be some sort of disaster and everybody who has those implants is going to be dead. So that's my, that's my, um, you know, <laughs> slightly informed perspective. Can you imagine, Athena, you yeah. got to your Harvard talk, you, yeah. you know, and you had an implant you know, yeah. a Neuralink yeah. that stopped working. <laughs> yeah. Then you took out a pencil to write or draw and you realized you couldn't. Because <laughs> 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 I think there's not going to be a backup contingency plan, right? <laughs> right now we know what it is to have a contingency backup, which is paper and, and our thoughts and our common sense. And our ability to speak too, Yes, right? yes. Because we won't have to speak with these implants, <laughs> right? It'll be brain to brain, right? As we were, we were hypothesizing. <laughs> Um, and, and so then what? I mean, I, I do think we're living in an era of the zombie apocalypse and I've seen pictures depicted uh, of this kind of state uh, and all it is is people looking down at their phones uh, at a bus stop, at an airport, in a queue, and I think they're looking down. We're, all, we're already in that phase of the zombie apocalypse. Um, 
what next? And it it all looks normalised. That's the issue. Yeah. And it's not like I'm not one of these zombies. Uh, I don't want to come out of this program not, you know, sounding like I, I never do uh, what I see. Uh, but it's been an interesting observation looking at people looking down. And when Google Glass was created, um, you know, Sergey Brin said, look, it's the end of looking down. We're going to be looking outward now. We can lift those uh, uh, heads up and those faces and instead look out into a glass, a wearable glass, a digital glass. And that would allow us to breathe in and look around. One of the glasses would be a rolling internet feed and the other would be <laughs> to the physical world, right? But what about looking up? You know, I think it's an interesting thing um, for those uh, who have some form of a belief system, uh, an all-seeing eye perhaps, uh, we're forgetting to look up a lot mm-hmm. um, at the sky uh, or at uh, what some people might represent as God. Um, so this zombie apocalypse is interesting. It's been normalised. Uh, some of us know we're in it. Some of us deny that we're in it. Uh, but it's a stage of denial, I think. But what comes next will be interesting if we do go down the path of these neural implants. So, the, yeah, the idea of looking up, like, raises almost like those sort of clockwork orangey questions, right? Of like, Because <laughs> these neural implants could also possibly control people's behavior for the better. Um, what do you what do you think? Do you think this is a, a going to be a good thing or a positive thing? Do you think this is something you or would that you it, that it could be a good thing? Maybe yeah. Like what so. would be the path for it being a good thing? Is there one? It's a it's a wonderful question to ask. I mean, tech for good. Uh, you know, as a technologist myself, I always have to look at uh, why we create, uh, what the value is, what our hopes are, uh, and if I was someone uh, suffering with a particular disability or living with a disability, and it enabled me perhaps to be able to communicate with people uh, or machinery around me without having the need to move my limbs or to speak, then for me perhaps it would be the most liberating technology in the world. Right. On the other hand, um, my husband and I have written now for about 15 years on the potential for what he has called uber-valence. It's uh, an embedded surveillance um, which monitors from the inside looking out. Think about Big Brother on the inside looking out. It's it's looking at vital signs. It's looking at uh, precision medicine. It's looking at our movements or lack thereof. It's looking at our identity. It's looking at our condition. But when we start to look at some of the nascent stages of the reverse happening, so it's not Neuralink, the implantable that sits just behind my head uh, or my ear, what happens when we start to look at the environment as surveilling, as that being a potential AI space? We've got children, school children uh, in China now exposed to a smart eye, which is an eye, a digital eye on top of a blackboard, which quantifies them, uh, which qualifies them, which identifies their mood into seven different moods. And this is now not just in one school, but many schools. Uh, Or live stream their engagement in the classroom with the public uh, without reservation. It's just on a public uh, web address where your parents could look at you, your teachers, uh, of course, monitor because they're in the classroom, but could play back, uh, where the general public, utter strangers, psychopaths, anyone could could look at your behavior and comment on your behavior in the classroom. So in a nutshell, what I'm where I'm going with this is we believe that this will have major impacts on the human condition, on human dignity, on freedom, on our right to be the person we are, on our behavior. I think we're going to see morphing of our behavior based on context. Mm. If uber is constantly surveilling us, whether it's a brain implant or biometric 
recognition systems in a classroom or in a in a public sp- space. What does that do to our natural state? Again, going back to the override, I must be like this because the system is gathering evidence and wants to project me as this. And if I'm not constantly smiling in class or in the public, maybe they're going to think I'm a criminal. Or um, I'm not sure if I should be opening my book right now and looking busy or listening to the teacher and looking front on. I think I'll just choose uh, to change my behavior in a way that's acceptable. And and where I'm going with this, and, and MG Michael is also, is on whether we believe in a future where technology will be our solution to our behavior, whether we can do the right thing, we can be the good citizen, the good person, uh, because tech regulates us. You know, so, we rely on tech to regulate mm-hmm. our, our movements. So I have a question about that, almost going back to the Google Maps. Thing, right? Yeah. Because as you're describing that, you're, imag- you're describing somebody who's, who knows they're being watched and knows they want to make a good impression and then they're still making the choice of should I smile, right? Mm. What if, on the other hand, there's a brain implant that just takes over, that just says, look, the AI has run thousands of human interaction simulations, right? And let's say you're trying to make a good impression at work or in school, right? It's just, it makes you look down, right? You just look, and maybe it even makes you want to look down, right? Where you're just like- Or it makes you look up and smile. (laughs) (laughs) At the right times, it makes you study at the right time, right? And just completely Mm. like- It inhibits the right things and disinhibits the right things so that you behave in the way that is going to maximize your chances of succeeding in the world the way the algorithm has decided the world is working. Yeah, exactly. Like, and I don't know what sort of ethical- framework and maybe you can choose right you can choose whether you want your good person framework or you want just your maximize you know so which one of those is scarier that's pretty scary i mean are we really human david when we get to that point and and do we i'm going to challenge you on this do you really think we need our bodies if we get to a point like just just I know what we'll do, you know, because we, we never choose to come to the world, right? Nobody asked David or Athena or Katina, do you want to come to the world? We got here, right? right. We, we, we woke up, we cried as we were coming out of our mother's tummy, and it was that first cry into the world. <laughs> right, and for those people who have recorded it, it's, it's an amazing, amazing sound. Uh, but nobody asked you, and, and if we do go down this route, my question is whether we are human or as some have postulated, post-human. And then the other thing is whether we actually need those things which decay, uh, like our limbs, our sarks, our body. Um, And so I had three scenarios at my recent TEDx talk in March this year. It was one, you know, we can perhaps replace all those vital organs with implantable devices. And we have devised 14 implantable devices, as was demonstrated at the Smithsonian. Heart, heart, kidney, etc. Um, Mm. uh, bionic legs, bionic arms, um, faces even, uh, as was shown with one transplant recently. What's left after you replace it? It's just the brain. It's just just the brain, right? Which is being run, possibly. Mine, right, I've opted to have mine run on autopilot. (laughs) (laughs) Mine's being run in the cloud, and so I'm just observing how great I'm doing at everything. Right, Right. so in that kind of zombie scenario, there could be humans who say they will remain human, and give birth the biological way, there may well be people who invest in CRISPR technology and think, well, I'll just give birth to myself, leave my estate to myself, and I'll make a clone of myself, so then I never die. 
theoretically on earth. And then there maybe will be those people that take it to the extreme, right? They're the people that say, look, I want to go through that operation that just has my brain sitting on some uh, vat, in some vat, uh, kept alive by the earth's telluric currents. I'm uh, plugged in in all sides uh, and all forms, and I'm completely free of the earth, of gravity. I'm completely free and I'm completely plugged in with as much memory as I want. Not only that, I can mate with all the others who are in this uh, hive mind. And so these are some of the things that some of the transhumanists uh, are thinking about in Silicon Valley. Uh, these are not things I've devised. They're things I'm reading uh, through different uh, proponents. But it's this thing where we want to actually trample down death because we believe we can. And so how do we do that? You know, the ancients built a tower. They built, they built the Tower of Babel. They thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put one block on top of another. I'm going to build a really long, a really big tower. I'm going to climb on the tower. I'm going to get to heaven and I'll have immortality. Right? We've seen different um, groups of people attempt different things. So I think our modern day attempt is we can live forever through the uh, technology we're creating. And that's the end game. That's super intelligence. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like as we go more and more towards these ways of like integrating ourselves with technology at the same time as we're sort of getting these superhuman strengths, we're also introducing vulnerabilities that we don't even realize we are introducing. And the minute that things change, that the environment we're in changes, that the resources that are around changes, that the threats change, we're not going to have those capacities that we otherwise would have been able to apply to the situation. So I think there's a sort of, I don't know, this like path that looks like, oh, things are getting better and better, but there are all these hidden vulnerabilities that we're accepting as we take those steps. Yes. And why right. do we believe it? I mean, on the one hand, Elon Musk came out last year telling us AI is going to be the end of humanity within five years. And on the other, he's now investing in a company called Neuralink, his own company, which is about interfacing with the AI. And he says in the recent talk, you know, it won't happen quickly. It'll happen slowly and you, it won't be mandatory, he says. These are his exact words. And you may choose to go down this path, ha, 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 and you may not. I, I think, what are we really believing here? Why are we believing it? What is it about this rhetoric that is so alluring? Huh. Uh, I think I know what it is for me. Yeah. For me, it's that so the same as to go back to when we were talking about Google Maps and people driving the wrong way, right? I remember what my, what I was like before Google Maps, and I was still driving the wrong way and <laughs> past my house, right? And I think that's a pretty apt metaphor for my life. So when I can think about this thing that chooses, tells me, how to make the major life choice. I'm like, oh yeah, no, I'll take that. I'll just take it. Because otherwise it's, I feel like, you know, I spent otherwise, so- Otherwise it's on you. Otherwise it's on me. And I know <laughs> I set a pretty low bar, you know, like but, compared to compared to some supercomputer that I don't know. But David, the spontaneity of two people coming together and looking into their each other's eyes, the mystery and the windows uh, of that mystery. I remember somebody, um, at a conference I hosted in, uh, at Ryerson University in 2013, said we can create these drones, we can create these uh, mapping systems to remove risk, to lower risk, to lower vulnerability. 
to make you meet your match, to make you do these things, to allow you to do these things, I should say. And I put up my hand and I talked about the critical point of what makes us human is spontaneity. And I don't want to lose that spontaneity. That's what makes us vulnerable and human. But I also go back to what Athena says. If we're struggling with blue screens of death today, and your scenario, (laughs) Athena, of the Apple phone not turning back on when you needed it most, at that most critical point you're in transit, are we willing to risk our lives interfacing with machines so closely when it comes to our um, our life? And I go back to a wonderful professor uh, who we interviewed in 2007, Professor Christopher Tomazu, the oldest, sorry, the youngest biomedical researcher to take on the chair uh, at Imperial College London. And he still talks about this as a biomedical person. Let the biology do what it does best. Let the analog do what it does best in the human body. And you can interface at arm's length with the digital and you won't be at risk of these innate and inner um, vulnerabilities you were talking about, Athena. So I I concur with you on that front. Hmm. I would never want to be in an endless loop hit with a virus, right, in my system, in my body. I would never want someone coming up to me and then having a blue screen of death attack. I would never want to be subject to a distributed denial of service attack where I can't reboot my head and I lose and I have atrophy because I'm not using my brain. What we do know over some time is that the less we use our brain, the more we go for the easier path, up the escalator, up the elevator, we don't walk. What's happening to us? We're becoming more obese. We're becoming dysfunctional. We can't add simple numbers. Uh, Not that that matters anymore, but we're, we're losing our ability to do things that we always used to do. Change a tire, even though that's not really important, but get from A to Z. And so my big concern is that backup contingency of what happens if we rely too much on the technology, what's happening to the brain is their brain uh, atrophy occurring. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if we think of this from like we back up a little bit, like, you know, what is our vulnerability to getting hijacked by viruses? Well, we can think of it from biological perspective in terms of microbes, right? So yes. like our immune, we have an immune system that's there to keep us from getting hijacked by microbes that might be pathogenic, that might be having a negative effect on us, right? And we, if you look at our physiology, there's this whole system, um, you know, not just for keeping viruses under control in our, in our bodies, um, but we have a blood brain barrier, right? So the stuff that our body lets go around in our, you know, the rest of our tissues, like it lets way less into the brain because it is such a sensitive Mm -hmm. and exploitable tissue. Um, The, um, in the brain, there's way more circulating glucose. So it's like there's resources that are much more available there too. So, so, you know, our brains are this like, biologically really vulnerable thing and you know vulnerable to being hijacked right because if you can get in the brain and you can change the behavior of the organism then you have all of the power over the resources that that organism has right you're Mm -hmm. in the driver's seat so to speak definitely now we're coming full circle with like a driver (laughs) thing driver's seat that's a good metaphor (laughs) Oh. Well, yeah, the brain's yeah. in control, yeah, allegedly. So, yeah, but I, I think that our evolutionary history, we have been vulnerable to having our brains hijacked. And there is, you know, we can look at our, actually how evolution has shaped our physiology for hints about how important it is to protect our brains from 
getting hijacked by things that might not have completely aligned interests with us. And I think that's fabulous. I mean, here you're talking about something critical, Athena. We are inviting vulnerability into ourselves by venturing into these uh, kinds of services and products we're talking about. And the way I, I use a metaphor, it's, it's quite simple or an analogy. You know, when, when people want to invade our privacy, for example, uh, we might get telemarketers calling us at home and we just tell them, unless you're feeling like in a good mood and wanting to help someone doing a survey you, or it's relevant to you, you, you just say, I'm sorry, I'm not interested and you close the phone. We have warrant processes that disallow people, police, uh, strangers from coming and trespassing into our homes, right? Think about the home as the body. But right now we're going through a period of time where we just want to buy every IoT device we can, a smart toilet roll, a smart smoke detector, <laughs> a smart human activity monitoring, a, a, you know, a, a thermostat that's smart, and all of a smart Alexa. All of these things listen to us, they hear us, they transcript, transcribe everything we're saying at home. They monitor our entry and exit to the home and different spaces in the home. But we're, we wouldn't even pick up a, a phone to answer a survey. We'd put it down, and yet we're inviting this invasion to occur into our homes. It's almost either we don't understand what we're doing by buying these products uh, or not checking um, security and, and other vulnerabilities of strangers actually hijacking a baby monitor, which has been done so often because of lack of security mm. and voices coming into the baby's room at odd times. But we're inviting the technology to enter our sacred spaces and our home is the most sacred space. I don't think any of us would want a full multimedia uh, content uh, recording of a week or in our home uh, at any point in time in their life. And yet we're willing to do that, to take the gamble into the human body. And it's, it's, that's the analogy here. We say no to, to harmful things and we're contemplating the potential of merging with a machine. It's almost like we've already sold out by introducing the surveillance monitors into our home. They're not just on the outside recording outwards, they're recording inside. And is that supposed to make us safer, better? So I think that part of what is going on here is that, you know, there are these benefits, right, that, that we get, especially, I think, in the short term from using these systems yes. and these devices. Um, and I think there's a sort of paradox of vulnerability where you feel like you're making yourself safer um, or um, or even just you're reducing friction, which lets you do more stuff, right? So it's like you, you don't have to get up to turn the lights on. You can just say, Alexa, turn on the lights. You don't have to get on your computer to buy something on Amazon. You can just say, Alexa, buy it, right? So it's reducing friction. And I think in a world where Everything is super competitive and time is such a valued resource. And we're often operating in with these blinders on because we're stressed mm -hmm. that reducing friction, reducing switching time, that those things are really appealing to us because we're so often already operating in this mode where we're kind of stressed and, and mm. zombified. And so it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, well, OK, I don't have to get on my computer and do this yes. thing. I don't have to remember that I have to do this thing. Um, that that provides these benefits that might, you know, be very real and important and provide a leg up for people in a competitive environment. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think there's a, it, it, you know, it's, it's not completely incomprehensible why it's happening mm. because there are these, these benefits that we get from it. But I think the question comes when we start to ask you know, well, what are we 
unknowingly and unwittingly giving up as we are inviting these things in that we think are helping us. I think that's, yeah, that's, because if you think about like the internet 20 years ago, right? And I don't know about you guys. Do you guys remember like the first time, I don't actually remember the first time I bought something online, but I do remember the time when the internet existed and the idea of ever putting your credit card into the internet was just <laughs> crazy. Right? Yeah. Like, yep. Nobody's ever going to buy something right. on the internet because you're just typing like, and now, uh, you know, you only buy things through the internet, essentially, <laughs> you know, where it's like Almost. you can have your phone in the supermarket and you're like, yeah, mm. I'll just pay for this through the internet. Like, and so, and I think it's same thing with this internet of things. Like pe- people are buying more and more smart thermostats because there hasn't been a, terrorist thermotech thermostat attack you know and so it's like okay like the, the terrorist thermotech <laughs> <laughs> and there could be in arizona you know, yeah. air um, but uh, but there is also this thing of there's this whole other way that we've been zombified by this technology which was mm. not really it's like it's it wasn't our credit cards being stolen but it was the way that our, this information, this sort of is, has all, all of our information feeds have become content marketing, right? The way that's like sort of telling us stuff, but then also sort of saying, but really you should buy this thing by whoever is providing the information. And so that yeah. is the thing that scares me the most, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, well, the thing that I hate, and like this has been a realization for me over the past year or so, because I invested quite a bit of my time and energy into try to like trying to provide like valuable information on social media and like tweeting at conferences. I'm like, I want to put something out there that's valuable. And at some point I realize, oh, what I'm doing is creating content so that Twitter and Facebook (laughs) can sell stuff. Like I'm creating free content for them to sell stuff to my friends and the people who follow me. Like I don't feel good about that anymore. Yes. But what do we do now that everyone is on? Is hooked those feeds. Mm. <laughs> it, it is the paradox of technological potential, isn't it? It's um, two steps forward, one step back. And I just, I mean, I remember the first time, uh, I not only remember the first time I bought something or sent an SMS, uh, these were <laughs> significant moments in my research anyway. Uh, I remember the first time I was at university and one of my colleagues, uh, a classmate, said to me, Katina, Katina. I said, what, Clint? He said, you've got to go up to level 10. I said, calm down. Why? He said, there's something there called the internet. <laughs> and, um, of course, it was Netscape's Mosaic browser. So I went upstairs to level 10, uh, waited. It was just packed, all these students wanting to see what the internet was and the new Netscape uh, browser. I sat down finally and it took about two seconds for me to get you know, comfortable. And the guy next to me goes, hey, miss, do you know how to spell amphetamines <laughs> and I just was like A-N-T <laughs> I've spelled it wrong sorry on air oh my gosh uh, anyway so, so, so <laughs> I can't spell I can't spell <laughs> no I've just forgotten I think I was too excited spelling ant or something anyway um, so, so it's like whoa that's what you're using the internet for whoa, you know, it helped that he was wearing a Metallica T-shirt as well, but, you know, I don't want to stereotype. But the whole thing was, look at this incredible technology we have used our brains, our intelligence to build. And I go back to what are we going to do with it? 
you know. Um, I, I think we're going to take back power. I think we're going to, yeah, I think we're going to take back the power. I, th- I think we're coming to the realisation, and I'm hopeful, uh, that society will look on it as an invaluable tool that will help and educate. Um, we, don't, we haven't seen literacy levels rise since the internet. You know, all these people that say now we have the most information available freely to the whole world it hasn't really made us exactly smarter in terms of uh, quantitative benchmarks. In fact, the OECD has had vast concerns, uh, as published in the reports, uh, throughout the last five years about literacy levels. Um, But what it might do is help us to do something like democracy by design. It might allow us to coordinate better. It might allow us to uh, socialise better. My hope is that it will break down barriers. So long as we are have those ads you're talking about, Athena, removed, you know, and not being there to railroad uh, what Tim Berners-Lee saw as the hope of the World Wide Web, right, back when he created a schematic to show it and then implemented it. So how do we take back control from those things that we sensitively write in those search boxes, like I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling sick, uh, I'm thinking about a divorce, my child's having an attack of some sort, uh, a, B, C, D. These are the things we divulge to a machine and a search box. You know, I don't think we want these things to be used for us in a, in a way that would control us by purchasing certain things and impulse buying, given our weaknesses or vulnerabilities, known vulnerabilities and things uh, in terms of behavior that we're going through. What we would like to see, and, and now we're moving from typing in the search box to speaking out those searches, it's almost like you don't even have to ask a question anymore. We'll go on your conversation. The Alexa will take your conversation. Uh, a pity it accidentally uh, mailed out some transcripts to 1,700 different people recently. But anyway. Really? Yes. Dinner conversations. Uh, you can look that up. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are many cases. Uh, what do you mean it mailed it? Like it emailed. Emailed yeah. the conversation. The conversation the of the house. Yeah. To, to the people. Strangers. Yeah. Strangers. To strangers. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> so, so, so we don't right. realize, firstly, that we're that the machine is responding to voice-activated commands in a voice-activated environment, um, but also that it's being transcribed, also that there are some human users on Amazon's side or on any company's side that has IoT listening in, okay? Um, So we don't realise that until there are accidents that occur, mishaps, um, things being sent to wrong addresses, uh, things being sent or or miscommunication happening. And we know speech-to-text is not accurate. It might be like, 96% 96% accurate in some of the best things, uh, some of the best products out there, but it's not fully accurate. So what if it says the wrong thing? You didn't actually say the word, but but sure. it happens. And, and so where I'm going with this, imagine we could create an environment, a system, um, which looked at democracy by design. It looked at the public interest. It looked at people's needs and values in different markets. And the system we create is there to help us do things like resource pooling, if I have too much electricity and someone can't afford it down the road, how can that automatically happen in the background with AI or algorithms? How can I share um, food that I'm about to throw out? You know, that's a, been an age-old problem. Um, some companies have been created based on this um, basic premise of waste, right? How could I recycle better? What can I do better as a community? You know, it's not about finding the criminal in the needle in the haystack. It's not about collecting DNA evidence. It's not about um, getting everybody's facial uh, expression and saying if they're happy, sad or ugly or in terms of um, uh, how they're feeling. Um, but w- what, are we, what are we going to invest this powerful thing we've got in? 
Is the best we can do linking up with Neuralink or is there something more that we have to do in the world uh, with these technologies? Yeah. Katina, are there any models for doing this differently? I know we've been talking a lot about, you know, this what's going on in the U.S., what's kind of coming from Silicon Valley, what is happening in, in that space. But there are a lot of other countries in the world that have different rules about this, right? And, and my shallow understanding is that at least in the EU, things are a little bit different about how information can and is used in these spaces. Yes, um, we have the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is a stark difference uh, in approach. We've seen companies penalized for the abuse of data uh, and uh, consent processes that haven't been followed. Um, so many companies have been um, fined uh, for more than antitrust issues um, that lock us into a particular application. So what we're seeing is a, a, an enforceability mechanism, uh, a way to attempt to uphold the rights of a child, the rights of uh, humans uh, in human rights speak, um, ethical alignment by design, um, a lot of standards coming in. But when we look at AI principles, they're being devised by all sorts of people, government agencies, uh, large corporations, um, electrical and engineering bodies. But the problem we have is in following the principles that we create. And so the same companies that have created these principles have been the same companies that have been fined for abuses of data. Sure. Um, and and that's, that's, again, the paradox. How can this be and how will this change? Um, I do think we need to uh, go towards a more equitable, equitable model. And uh, one of the papers my husband and I wrote some time ago was that resistance is not futile. Um, we often think, oh, well, I'll just take this upgrade. I'll take the next one in a year. I'll take the one after that. Oh, the hi-fi system I bought, well, it failed in six months, but yeah, nothing lasts for 20 years these days. So I'll just go and get a new one. It's cheaper than buying a warranty on top of that. So we're subject to planned obsolescence. So something is going on in the way we manufacture goods. Um, why are they being built? So that could be throwaway items. Why is a printer cheaper to replace than getting new toner? Um, all of these things are, are, are in the rhetoric of resistance is not futile because we're told through science fiction that resistance is futile. Whether we look back in the last 40 years uh, of science fiction movies and film, um, what we are currently being told and continuously being told is that you're either with us or, you're, you know, we're leaving you behind. Um, you either do it this way or you're not cool. It's, so it be, our practice becomes normalized because we believe if we are different then we are left behind. And it's a simple example of um, anyone without a mobile phone at ASU would find it hard to get access to their email address, yeah. as, as an example. I mean, you could be anywhere in any corporation these days. So if you say, I have no email, I have no mobile phone, I want to live off the grid, I want to be a poet, for example, then life is pretty hard for you. There are no contingencies. There are less and less. We are saying as uh, providers, you either go this way or there's the road. You know, you, 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 there's so much power invested in, in large transnationals. And I'm not saying that power is wrong, money is wrong, uh, that these companies are all about greed. That's not the case. They have to function as economic uh, entities. But how can we flip the model, the business model that says it's all about adv advertising, it's all about knowing what people think, it's all about impulse buying and complementary and supplementary products. How can we flip that as citizenry? Because we're in a life world. We could be part of these organizations as workers, as I was once was. We could be uh, 
customers or customers of customers. How is it that we return power to ourselves as citizenry and say, well, we should go this way, not that way? And they're all new techniques. It's about participation. It's about co-design methodologies. It's about respecting the end user, the citizen, and not really even thinking about them as consumers. Everyone is a person. So we need to get back to fundamental basics about what we create, why we create it, who we consult. And it's not about the build and they will come mentality. It's about what do you need mentality. Yeah. I, well, I think that there's also this questioning, at least that I'm personally starting to do, about, you know, there are these incentive systems out there in the world that we can follow, right, and try to succeed within the frameworks that are there, whether it's, um, you know, getting as many publications and high-level journals as possible, right, which is yes. what we're sort of told in uh, academia, yes, that's what you should be doing, sure. and anything else that you do that's not that is not worth it, mm-hmm. um, or uh, that the, the measure of success of something is how much money it makes, right? right? I mean, I think oftentimes we don't realize that all of these these systems of like, this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're supposed to achieve, that those are, they're essentially ethical systems that are functioning in the background that we don't even question sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? Like, what should we be maximizing? Yes. Right? I mean, it doesn't feel like an ethical question. It's like, oh, that's just what, that's just the rules that are out there, (laughs) right? But ultimately, it is. The question of what should you be maximizing is an ethical question. It, it, it is. Uh, but as somebody who, because I spent a good portion of my life sort of doing the Edward Abbey off the grid sort of thing, mm-hmm. it's not that viable of an alternative. You know, like eventually, mm. I think, especially for me personally, having kids and things, there's a point where it's like, oh, I see, I need to now make mm-hmm. money, right? Like it is, like, I do think... I think there's a, there's, as I'm thinking about this, you know, yeah. I'm like, I do feel like it's inevitable, right? And the question <laughs> isn't really how can we stop it as much as it's how can we make it as beneficial for everyone as possible? Um, yeah, right. Because there's a certain relationship that we have with the systems that we're in, yes. right? And they provide benefits to us for sure, right? Yeah. So then I think the, that for me, it's not so much like, oh, I want to stop doing anything in the system, but more like realizing, okay, if I if I'm making that my goal and I'm doing that at the expense of all of these other mm. things, that there's an ethical dimension to making that decision of just trying to say maximize the number of peer-reviewed papers or yeah. maximize the amount of money I make, right? Like those decisions, if I'm if I'm trying to maximize those things at the expense of everything else, that's a I'm, I'm making an ethical trade-off. So I, it's just like a, you know, an awareness I'm starting to have on right. myself. But I love that. that. I love that. You're redirecting your strength and your power to things that matter to you that will benefit the majority. I, I think your call to come off social media to an extent was actually to redirect. I mean, you, 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 you nullified the ads imposed on others, allegedly, that you supported but didn't. Yeah, right? well, see, the thing is... I still am on social media and I'm trying to figure out what to do. I'm trying to figure out, well, how do I make, you know, how do I still reach the broader audience? audience? Because I I think Twitter is awesome that people who are not academics can have, uh, you know, access to the 
papers that we're yes, all publishing. They can hear what's happening at conferences. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that science Twitter is awesome, not just for scientists, but for the public who is super engaged yes. in that. Um, so I don't, I mean, I don't feel like I have a solution to it. I'm just yes. sort of like realizing, oh, you know, that the things that I'm doing in, in my life, that I'm interfacing with these systems in ways that I might not want to and i'm trying to figure out how to navigate that so i i I agree with that i also do think that these things are happening and there's a degree of sort of human evil that's in these things you know the Mm -hmm. way like there's like you were talking about like these things can monitor you and you can say oh i'm depressed and then they can either like send you a thing that can genuinely help with your depression yes. or they can have the alert that goes off that says this person is yes. depressed sell them whatever sell yes. them crack right yes. and so yes. like and and so i think there's a question i guess there's also there's on the one hand there's the question of how can we each individually protect ourselves but then mm-hmm. also there's as a society if this is happening what can we do what can we do to to steer it as much as possible away from that yes. thing where it's um, parasitizing people, I guess. Yeah. I mean, um, you're right. Yeah. So, practical. Do I have things? advice? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just, having uh, written quite a few papers uh, on gaming addiction, cybersexual addiction, internet addiction, uh, smartphone addiction, Facebook addiction, and these are all scales that have been developed at different universities across the world. Um, gaming addiction at the moment is the only uh, addiction that is in the uh, diagnostic um, manual. Uh, I don't want to say that all of the techniques are self-regulation approaches, that you know it's up to the individual because it's not just up to the individual. We have to hold these companies accountable that are creating uh, and developing applications that have stickiness drivers embedded in them and, and cause repeat visits, cause you, cause, cause young children um, to give over credentials, give over uh, images of themselves uh, in front of applications. Um, we need to create standards and benchmarks. I'm currently chairing the um, IEEE Working Group uh, on the Rights of Children Online. And it's more than just safety and um, cyberbullying. It's more than just self-harm and suicide uh, materials. It's more than just looking at uh, varying um, websites that attract their attention. It's also about the normalized applications um, as, as, as basic as access to YouTube and recommender systems um, to try and raise awareness about uh, what young people are consulting to, what's age-appropriate material, um, how do we know that, how can we actually identify that without um, uh, breaching someone's um, private c- credentials? Um, and what I think in the end, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a duality here where we have government regulations and laws. We have companies trying to do the right thing uh, and abiding by standards that we create as uh, different institutions. And then we try to self-regulate. We become aware. We, ha- we have media literacy programs at school, for example, as one basic uh, introduction, but at home, you know, sometimes I just use a, a basic rule of thumb: the phone doesn't go on in the car, doesn't go on in the kitchen, and doesn't go in the bedroom. 
if, if you can just hold off on those three things, you've got your attachment with your family again. You can actually have a meal or you can actually have an intimate conversation or you can listen to the kids on the way home uh, when they're telling you their news about their day in the car. So there's very simple things we can do as, as to regulate, but what we're being uh, currently trying to keep our heads above water is what Arthur Schopenhauer used to call the non-stop noise. We yeah. have non-stop noise. And uh, Hannah Arendt called it bright lights, the propaganda that's coming from the bright lights. And what happens when you see bright lights? A deer goes in front of a car with bright lights and it just freezes, right? doesn't know what to do. And when we have non-stop noise, we have a message, we have another message, we have a voicemail, we have this, we have yeah. that, we have demands of that and this. We become almost like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do next. I'm just going to well, keep listening. Well, what you do is you respond to whatever's beeping the loudest, <laughs> right? Yes, yes, yeah? you definitely do. I mean, that's do. the only thing that you can do in that kind of right. situation. But is that the right thing? Is that really prioritizing? <laughs> you are so right. Yeah. You know, what happens when we have 500 emails that are banked up and unread in our inbox because oh, we've been I in meetings? I don't have that. I don't you? No, I do. <laughs> right now. <laughs> I know you do. And what do you do? You wait for the person to go to the top of the list again and complain the next day. And, you know, and then that, after three emails from someone who's really adamant to get your attention, you go, I think I better, you know, it's not because you don't want to. My, my husband says to me, but you've got unread emails. And I said, but Michael, I have to sleep. You know, this is the thing, you know. Yeah. You know, you, you need to have that four to six hours minimum. <laughs> and we should, be, we should be having double that, right? Yeah. So, so the, what's happening with the nonstop noise is that we're buried. We're, we're mm-hmm. like, um, like completely buried and we can't, we can't look up to go, right, now just take a, a, a bit of a step back. Am I going down a boat ramp? Am I, go- <laughs> I love that to an ending to a podcast. Am I going down a boat ramp? <laughs> Well, um, Katina, before we we finish up, we always ask towards the end of the podcast, like, what is your version of the zombie apocalypse of this kind of zombification? Oh, wow. Would you paint a picture for us of what the zombie apocalypse of being zombified by implants and algorithms and all of these things that we've been talking about today? What would that be? Wow, I wasn't waiting for this. So today is actually the feast day of St. John the Theologian, the writer of the Apocalypse in the New Testament, right? So on the Eastern Orthodox calendar, which I observe, uh, it is St. John's feast day. And uh, he was exiled to Patmos in, uh, I believe, somewhere around 95, 96 AD. He he, he, uh, passed. He slept in the Lord. And what would be my concoction. Let's let's go with that. Let's go with the theme of St. John, where in chapter 13, he, he talks about the Antichrist coming uh, and implementing a system of buying or selling that requires them to take an, not an implant, to take a mark. Hmm. Let's call the Z a mark. Maybe it's the mark of the beast or the number of the beast, the 666 that says, buy, you know, you can't buy or sell without this mark. And what if I was to say to you in the future, uh, this scenario might be a blockchain uh, based on this Bitcoin uh, that required everyone to have a mark just behind the ear uh, or on the right hand or the forehead, as he says, that meant they were zombified, that the seal of baptism was almost replaced with this mark of the beast. That's that's the total zombification as told by St. John. So you have to be submitting to be zombified in order to participate in the world. And if you didn't consent, you're relegated to not being able to buy or sell. 
Wow. Do you think we're not there? Oh, <laughs> oh. I, I don't see any visible marks on my body yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't consented to it anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess you're right about the, the visible marks. But we, we are in a situation where you have to sort of, right, you have to have these devices in order to, to buy and sell. Participate in a so, certain yeah. way. At um, least. So, which was the thing I was thinking when we were talking about the internet. I was thinking back before then, like, I probably had a debit card, but I don't think I ever entered the number in anything. I would get cash and I'd pay for things with cash. And nowadays it's like, you have to have, you know what I mean? A way to digital. It's, uh, yeah. Anyway. You can still use cash, though. You can. And who knows for how long? But you can't use, right. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can use cash for a lot. But you couldn't, I don't think you could pay, you can't buy anything on Amazon with cash. You can't pay for your phone with cash, I don't think, right? Maybe you can. Maybe I just am so used to not, so. So I I guess what we're saying is maybe there's the zombie apocalypse we're living in right now, which is a precursor to the real apocalypse of St. John, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Multiple apocalypses. Yes. Yeah, wow. Well, I feel like I have a lot to, to think about and figure out how I'm going to move forward with my own life, given all this information. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we usually do have the, the what can we do to prevent or minimize the damage from yeah. that sort of a box. That scenario? Yeah. A, in a more positive, yeah. So. Uh, well, we can opt out. As a, as a, as a society, we can say uh, categorically, uh, we're not interested in that kind of system uh, of a cashless society uh, and I'm not opposed to cashless societies uh, as such. Um, I am opposed to not having choice. And um, we have the illusion of choice today, but I'm opposed to an either-or scenario, uh, you know, either A or B. I want us to have a proliferation of access points for a variety of citizenry across the world uh, so that everyone feels quite comfortable with their ideological position, their philosophical position, their uh, spiritual position, uh, whatever that, whatever they they believe in or do, and uh, I learned that from a privacy scholar, Simon Davies of Privacy International, who was uh, a member of the Australian Privacy Foundation uh, back in the eighties, nineties. Uh, it's about choice and giving people the choice. Hmm. So it's about not being zombified by having choice. Yeah, or at least having the illusion of, of not choice. being zombified <laughs> because you have the illusion of choice. <laughs> Yeah. Great. Well, Katina, thank you so much for sharing your brains with all of us on this episode of Zombified. It was so amazing having you. I loved meeting your brains. And may I say, may our brains be great together. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we
Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, and the President's Office at ASU, the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics, and to all of the brains that help make this podcast. To Tal Rahm, who does our awesome sound, Neil Smith, our amazing illustrator, Lemmy, the creator of our song, Psychological, which I have to admit I'm kind of obsessed with, and to our Z team of graduate students and undergraduates who transcribe all of our episodes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're Zombified Pod, and we are Zombified Podcast on Facebook. Our website is zombified.org, and if you go to our website, you can also buy our merchandise. We have Zombified t-shirts and stickers that feature the floating head, perfect for your laptop or your water bottle, wherever you want to stick it. And you can support us also by becoming a patron on Patreon. Uh, For just $1 a month, you can help us make these great Zombified episodes and help us be the all educational, no ads kind of operation that we want to be. Now, at the end of every episode, I share my brains. And today I'm going to tell a very short little story about something that happened to me yesterday. And then I'll go on a a rant. Might be slightly longer than the story. But um, so the story is I went out to dinner with my husband and with um, two of our friends went on a double date to a uh, restaurant in Scottsdale, which was quite nice and quite delicious. And then at the end of the meal, they bring us the check. And on the check, it says that they are a cashless restaurant. So they don't accept cash. You have to pay with a credit card or a debit card, basically. And I didn't really think that much of it, but... As I was preparing to record the outro for this episode and thinking about what Katina says about whether the apocalypse will come when we all have to have a mark of the beast in order to buy and sell things and have economic transactions, it made me wonder about this, what is apparently an emerging trend of cashless restaurants. And it's not just like fancy restaurants in Scottsdale, Arizona. Apparently, um, there is a Shake Shack in Manhattan that is cashless. So what happens when we start moving from a world where anybody can walk into a restaurant or a fast food joint and order something to eat and pay with cash to a world where you have to have a bank account and a, or a high credit score uh, in order to have that piece of plastic in your pocket that allows you to buy a burger. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> I'm slightly worried, but um, I also I understand the convenience of not having to carry cash and you know, in some ways more secure, um, although there are identity theft issues, right, that come from us relying too much on the plastic that we carry in our wallets. So it's a complicated world and seems like it's 
getting more and more complicated in terms of this issue of how we do commerce in an increasingly digital age and what the trade-offs are for increasing convenience and now, are there ways that we can gain that convenience without inadvertently introducing sort of classism, which I think is potentially an issue with the cashless society? I don't know the answer. Hopefully, we will have more opportunities to talk with great guests like Katina over the next couple of seasons that can help shed some light onto this. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you.